Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, and you're listening to Season 4 of The Females, a podcast that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season, we're exploring the theme of courage, from the traditional definition to the new and unexpected ways that courage shows up in our own lives. Today's interview is with Liz Foslian and Molly West Duffy, the co-authors of No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. It's a courageous move to bring your full self, emotions and all, to work. And this episode will cover why caring less about your work can actually help you succeed, what selective vulnerability is, and why you need it. Plus, we'll be covering tips for establishing boundaries and much more. It's definitely going to be an episode you turn to throughout your career. There's so much great stuff covered, and I can't wait to get started. And speaking of covering great stuff, stay tuned towards the end of each episode where Kayleen and I will be sharing our highs and lows, favorite things, work stories, and much, much more. And now, this is The Female. Hi, Liz and Molly. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. This is Liz. And this is Molly. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Let's start by hearing about your career paths and what led you to to write a book about emotions at work. And Molly, we can start with you. Absolutely. So my career path, I started working and I was working in a very tough job at a startup and I went to work one day and I got this area above my right eye that went completely numb. And I ignored it for a few days, finally went into the doctor and the doctor said, uh, I think this is caused by work stress. Do you have stress at work? And I was like, yeah, duh, everyone does. <laughs> but uh, as I left the doctor's office, I had this like epiphany of like, hmm, I probably should not be having physical manifestations of stress. I should probably be paying more attention to my emotions. So I ended up quitting that job. But my interest in how emotions affect our work uh, always stayed with me. And Liz and I met, we were mutual friends and she had had a sort of similar experience, which I'll let her tell you about. Yeah. So this is Liz and I started my career working as an economic consultant and similar to Molly, high stress, long hours, looking back, the work also, I think wasn't a great fit for me because I really enjoy creative work and it was much more staring at spreadsheets and like a Bloomberg terminal for 12 hours a day. And I also tried to just suppress all my feelings, suppress any feelings of stress and pretend that I was totally fine, totally capable. And I started having, after about a year, really severe migraines that eventually got so bad that I just had to quit and find something else. And that was sort of my big 
turning point of looking back and trying to better understand what could I have done to better handle my stress and then looking forward, what kind of work would allow me to actually flourish and thrive. Interesting. So you guys just recently wrote a book about, you know, handling emotions at work, mostly because you guys both had first jobs that were so stressful, you were having like emotional reactions to them. Yes, exactly. And I, I remember too, at one point, what was crazy looking back is I went to dinner with a few friends and three of us, there were four of us total, three of us were describing these crazy headaches or like stress-induced pains we were in. And we all just thought it was normal until my fourth friend was like, this is crazy. You guys shouldn't be feeling this. So I think it's unfortunately a much more universal situation than we'd want it to be. Right. Well, it's a good thing your fourth friend was there that night. So so you guys didn't, you know, just continue thinking like, oh, that's just how it is, I guess. So let's talk about, um, and Liz, I'd love to get your take on this. Why are emotions important at work? And why is it, you know, courageous to bring your emotions to work? Because I do feel like you kind of grow up, especially as women, where it's like, we're told a lot like, oh, she's just too emotional or she's just too sensitive. But it sounds like that's actually a good thing to bring to work. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think to start, I would just say that there's not really a choice in whether or not to bring your emotions to work because we are emotional creatures regardless of circumstance. And so you actually, it is biologically impossible not to feel. So given that, it's time that we start acknowledging that because once we acknowledge that we have feelings, that's when we can start to better figure out which ones are useful, which ones are not, and how do I effectively communicate what I'm feeling without bulldozing over other people's feelings. And I think it's especially courageous for women because we have, like you said, been taught that work is for so long has been kind of the domain of men. And I think there's a lot wrapped up in masculinity about you should be kind of, you should be rational and you shouldn't let your feelings dictate what you do. And so as a woman to kind of lean more into that and understand that empathy actually builds trust and that if you show some emotions, you're a much better leader. You're able to inspire people and motivate them and cultivate excitement around work. I think that's extremely brave. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I like that you guys do a lot in your book is you have a, a ton of illustrations to go along with it, which I think is great because sometimes, you know, emotions, it's nice to be able to see, especially with your guys' illustrations because they're really cute and funny, but to almost see it explained out in this visual way because sometimes when you're having, a, you know, an overwhelming emotion at work, whether you're, you're crying or you're empathetic or, you know, you're angry or whatever it is, it can feel like your first reaction is that you're supposed to just like not deal with it. Like, as you said, it's impossible not to bring them to work, but sometimes it feels like, oh, I should be able to decompartmentalize and just not feel this right now. Yeah, definitely. We included the illustrations because we wanted the book to feel when you opened it in the same way that we want people to feel about their emotions, which is they're engaged with them. You can treat them with affection. This doesn't have to be a scary thing. They're not the enemy that you have to wrangle into submission. We just wanted it to be like a more lighthearted, engaging take than what's currently out there. Yeah. Well, I, you guys were very successful at that for sure. Let's talk about women leaders and emotions. What does it mean to be selectively vulnerable? Yes. So this is Molly. I think this is important to talk about in in. Uh, specific to women, but also in general. So I'll talk about it in general first. So being selectively vulnerable means that you do share some of your vulnerability and authenticity when it's appropriate. And so 
leaders have to really walk this line. They need to be vulnerable because that shows that they are being authentic with their emotions. We pick up on the fact when leaders are fake. So if a leader is doing layoffs and they are not showing any emotion, we're going to say, huh, like that's weird that they are not showing emotion. Why am I going to trust this person? But at the same time, if they're overly emotional, then we also don't trust that they can do their job that well. So it's this very fine balance that they have to walk. And so we call it being selectively vulnerable. For women, there's even another layer on that, which is women are seen to be the more emotional traditionally of the two sexes. And so they are traditionally criticized for being more emotional, for showing any of their uh, feelings, for crying at work, all of that. However, that is changing. Um, In the last decade or so, we've seen um, much more acceptance of being vulnerable and authentic with your emotions at work, especially for women. Um, So if we think about so like Hillary Clinton's presidency, a lot of people feel like she didn't show enough emotion and so people didn't connect with her. So a lot of that is changing. Are the expectations different for men and women? Like wi- people expect women to also s- show more emotion like w- in the Hillary example that you just gave? I think traditionally that is true, but in the modern workplace, we need both men and women to be selectively vulnerable and to be authentic. So in the book, we talk about this example of when Howard Schultz came back to lead Starbucks after he was away, he cried in front of his entire employee base. And that was seen as like being a good leader. So I think we're seeing it more and more with men as that's good as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And in your guys' book, you also recommend caring less about work. Uh, Why is that? And why does it help you succeed to actually care less about work? I find that really fascinating. Yeah, this is Liz again. So we encourage people to just take a slight emotional step back from their jobs. It's still absolutely wonderful to have a job that you're passionate about and wake up every day excited to go into the office. But that actually becomes poisonous when you're overly invested and you start working at the cost of all your other relationships and all the other things that you have going on in your life. And that's when you see burnout rates increase. That's when a small piece of critical feedback, instead of seeing it as an opportunity to learn and grow, you internalize it and suddenly it feels like this entire condemnation of your sense of self. So in the book, we really encourage people, take the breaks you need. Many people feel guilty even asking for vacation. But it's just so important to be able to turn your brain off so that you're, one, able to recharge and come back to work in a week or even the next day to do your best job. And it's also just absolutely necessary for you to have sustained success. So the stories that Molly and I shared earlier, those were both instances in which we were not practicing emotional self-care, in which we were overly invested in our work to the detriment of ourselves, and we both had to leave either quit or for me, I just was forced to, because of my physical issues, leave those jobs. So it's really important to keep top of mind that it's better to go home at five, take a step back and then be at that job for a long time than to just throw yourself into it and be unable to work three weeks later. Right. Well, and now we have, you know, Slack and email and text messages and all this stuff that you can be you know, you can leave the office at five physically, but not mentally. So, and your advice is also like, make sure you put up those boundaries in, in the digital spaces also. 
Yeah, we've both created rituals around putting our phone away before we go to bed. I make sure I actually don't have Slack on my phone. And that's Ooh, something I've talked with my <laughs> yeah, that's what I've talked with my coworkers about. And then actually just started a new job. And what I really loved is my manager on the first day sat me down and she was like, We will have to work late some nights, but one thing that I want us to honor is to keep weekends sacred. Mm-hmm. And so I do not want us communicating on the weekend. And there's in the book, we give the example of Shonda Rhimes, who created Grey's Anatomy, and is just like an amazing person. When she had children, she actually set an auto response on her email that if you emailed her after 7 p.m. or on weekends, it would say, I'm not working. I'm taking time to be with my kids. If I'm your boss, may I suggest put your phone away? (laughs) That's great. I also feel like when your boss does it, I mean, they have to lead by example. So this is probably also great advice for managers and, and, and at companies and things like that. Yes. Okay. So you guys also talk about how jealousy can actually be a good thing at work, which I'm so curious because, (laughs) you know, you think of jealousy and your first reaction is, oh, that's not good. Or no, I don't want to have that. Molly, I would love for you to kind of explain like, why is jealousy at work actually maybe a good thing? Mm. Yes. We talk about this in our chapter on decision-making. And so often we feel like these negative emotions we shouldn't pay attention to because we feel shame about them. But with jealousy and envy, we can actually learn from it. So we talked to Gretchen Rubin, who's the author of The Happiness Project, and she told us that when she was making the career transition from being a lawyer to being an author, she got her alumni magazines and she was looking through them. And the people that she was most jealous of uh, were people who had great writing careers. But when she looked at people who had great law careers, she was like, Eh, doesn't matter. So for her, that was a big sign of, oh, this person has something that I want. And so instead of doing all these mental gymnastics to try and uh, say, you know, oh, I don't feel this envy. I'm not going to pay attention to it. Just know that it's okay and and learn from it. Mm -hmm. I wonder too, if people would be more open about, you know, like people don't say I'm jealous of so-and-so because that looks bad on you. I wonder if people embrace being able to say it in the, especially in the way that you're saying Gretchen Rubin did, where it's like, oh, I'm so jealous of all these authors. I want to be an author. I wonder if that would also change the narrative if it became kind of like a positive spin on it. Yes, absolutely. I think when we start naming it and talking about it, it normalizes it. It's similar. I mean, I was just listening to Brene Brown talk again about shame. And she was saying every time we use the word shame, we make it easier and we sort of reduce the power of shame as a negative thing. And I think the same thing is true with these negative emotions. The more that we talk about them as normal and things that you can actually learn from, we reduce the sort of negative bias against them. Mm -hmm. We actually give similar advice because we get asked a lot about career transitions. And oftentimes it's not just, I know what I want to do. How do I get there? But it's, I don't like what I'm doing currently. How do I figure out what my next thing is? And one of the pieces of advice we always tell people to do is start with, you know, self-reflection. It's like, look around at your friends and your family and, or you know, even LinkedIn or Instagram. Who has the job, as you said, like, that seems really cool. And looking at your alumni magazines is also a great idea. And I think also it's just, it's, it's a, it's a brainstorm, even though you wouldn't think of it as a a natural way to brainstorm because you're using jealousy to fuel it. I think it's a great idea. Absolutely. And what recommendations do you have for giving and receiving feedback at work? Because that's another really hard one for people. Either don't want to hurt someone's feelings or you gave the feedback and it was too personal. It was like had nothing to do with work. So what advice would you, you know, specific recommendations, even like a how-to for giving and receiving feedback? 
Yeah, this is Liz. And we have three tips for giving feedback that doesn't pack such a painful punch. So it's very normal that when you receive criticism, or even if it's really constructive, that your initial reaction is just like, oh, this feels really bad. And so as the giver, here's how you can make that a little better. And the first is to focus on really specific behavior. So vague criticism is super useless. It's really hard to act on that. So for example, if I just tell you your comments missed the mark, what does that mean? You have absolutely no idea what to do with that. Versus if I say on slide three, you repeated what you had done on slide four. So I would just cut that and then make everything a little more concise. I've just told you what you need to do to improve much more clear where to go from there. The second is about making it, uh, making it about bridging the gap. So it's so important to always frame feedback as I'm giving you this advice to help you because I believe that you can start uh, performing at a higher level. So one great way to do this is again, to give the specific feedback and say, I have very high expectations of you and I'm really confident that you can reach them. So again, it's, it's just giving that support and how you're framing the feedback. And then the last is just to always remember that how you say it matters. So different people like to receive feedback in different ways. I'm very fine with sort of in the moment, in person, just tell me what I'm doing wrong. I always want to be constantly improving. That's not everyone's preference. Molly and I have talked about this and she really prefers to get an email so that she can kind of process her reaction and think through it and then have a more in-depth discussion about it. And so if someone is not aware of our preferences, they might be trying to be helpful, but actually make one of us feel really bad if they're delivering it in the wrong way. And same goes for praise. Some people love public praise and some people just want to crawl into a hole and die. (laughs) Put them in front of a crowd and start talking about how great they are. So really important, again, just to ask people how they prefer to communicate. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I was giving feedback to our design team today and I specifically went into the office to give them the feedback in person because that's what I'm more comfortable with. And now I'm listening to this and I'm realizing, oh, I should have asked them first because especially when it comes to feedback for a design, like I like to verbally talk it out and I like to be able to see their reactions and, you know, kind of talk about it versus on Skype where it feels a little less of a, you know, ongoing conversation. But it's really fascinating because I, I never asked them. I never said like, I have feedback on this. Would you guys prefer email or in person, I kind of went what was best for me first. Yeah, for sure. And there's also, you can also talk about kind of what's the right ratio that you prefer about feedback to praise. I had this early in dating my partner. He would just give me feedback because I early on (laughs) told him I really like in the moment feedback. And then at one point I was just like, too much feedback. (laughs) I need you to say three nice things about me. And then just like tone it down a little bit with the feedback. Yeah. So just as long as there's, you know, safety for an ongoing conversation, that's always what's best. I love that. I actually haven't heard that advice about feedback before. And I think it's really great because I do think the ratio matters and really only, you know, you know, when you're kind of getting to that point where you're like, okay, okay, okay. Now you're, you're getting to the limit of how much yeah. you know feedback I can take. Um, that's exactly. really fantastic. And, and let's talk about introverts and extroverts. How can we all work together? Especially like I just said, like I never asked them how they wanted something. I, I thought I was an introvert, but I just recently took a personality test for something we were doing at Career Contest and it told me I was an extrovert. So now all bets are off. I feel like I need to go through a couple more of these to confirm that, but how how can we all work together knowing that some people get their energy from different sources? 
Mm, yeah. So this is Molly. Uh, Liz and I are both introverts. Um, and also just speaking of what you just said, you can also be an ambivert. So you can be sort of in the middle of the two tendencies, depending on the situation. So I think the first thing to know is most people know the definition of introvert and extrovert is where do you get your energy from? And that introverts, you know, can be very social, but then at the end of the day or after a lot of socializing, they need time to recharge and they get energy from being alone. Extroverts get energy from being with other people. There's also actually biological differences in our brains. And so um, introverts, the way that they take in information and process information, that pathway in the brain is longer. So I am listening to you that actually goes through my short-term and long-term memory. And so it takes me just a little bit longer to respond I'm thinking about it in a different way than an extrovert would. And so we just find that really helpful as introverts to know like, oh, that's why my responses might be a little delayed or why I need more time to respond. So the first thing is just getting really clear about what you are and what you, what types of people you work with. I have become much more comfortable at work being open about that as an introvert and just saying to mm-hmm. my team, like, hey, I'm an introvert. Doesn't mean that I don't love you. Doesn't mean I don't want to socialize with you. What it does mean is that when I'm traveling, and I've been with a team all day, what I may need is to go and have dinner alone in my hotel room just to recharge. And most extroverts are like, totally cool. Thank you for saying that. That never would have crossed my mind, but of course that's fine. Right. So I think we just need to, to share our needs a little bit more. Other tips for introverts, avoid sending extroverts really long emails. So as an introvert, the way that I process information, a lot of times is by writing it. And then when I send it to an extrovert, they look at the first paragraph and they're like, (laughs) okay, I'd just rather talk to you about this. (laughs) And to prepare for meetings. So if you know that you're going into a meeting, you can think about what is a question or something that I'm going to share. The research shows that if you chime in in the first 10 minutes, you'll be more likely to chime in later in the meeting. So make it a goal to chime in sooner. For extroverts, um, sending out agendas before meetings to give introverts a chance to prepare their thoughts. Again, just the way that we mentally process things, it just takes us a little bit longer. We're going to have great things to share, so you're going to want to hear it from us, but just give us the agenda beforehand. Thinking about breaking into pairs or duos to discuss things rather than a larger group. And the biggest thing is like, just keep asking. Like Introverts will come out of their shells once they get to know you, and so don't Uh, take offense and keep extending the invites. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know my sister is like that. She really doesn't like being put on the spot at a meeting to be like, Hey, what's your two cents? She really would much rather have the agenda ahead of time. It's something that I know that she has, you know, quote unquote struggled with, but really it's partially, she's never communicated to them like, Hey, this is, I'm better off being able to, you know, have the agenda first and then I can actually really give you some great input. And I do think that sometimes when you're not communicating about that, it's like the assumption goes to the worst place where it's like, oh, they just didn't have anything to add to the meeting. And that's not fair, uh, especially for the introverts, where, as you said, they probably have a lot of great things or they definitely have a lot of great things to add. But we have to make sure that we're thinking about how they can communicate it best, too. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so what's a user manual and do I need one? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm going to start with that. (laughs) So a user manual is basically a list of questions that we encourage teams to fill out at the start of a project. Um, Or if you're an ad hoc team, you've just come together. Anytime you're starting to work with new people, fill out a user manual. Some of these questions, they're really... So in listening to this whole podcast by now, hopefully you've... (laughs) realize that a big message in the book is just that different people have different preferences. The best workplaces 
listen to and honor preferences. And so user manuals are a way to kind of flush those out, create explicit space in which people can talk about how they like to work with each other. So a few questions that we have on ours, there's actually on our website, lizandmolly.com, we have a sample user guide. And the questions there, so the first one is, here are a few honest, unfiltered things about me. Um, another way of phrasing that that we've seen is often people misunderstand this about me at first. So for me personally, I just really need to be left alone when I'm concentrating on something. So especially if there's a lot of writing involved, I will block time off on my calendar. And if someone comes to me during that time to ask me a question, it just requires so much cognitive switching that it's really disruptive for my workflow. And I think I can come off as kind of brusque mm -hmm. when they ask me a question. Right. I actually took an assessment at my first job that told me that the best way to work with me is to be bright, be brief, and be gone. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't mean to be rude. It can come off that way. So I think that's just something that really helps clarify situations if someone's working with me. Other questions, I'm more of an introvert or an extrovert. This is how I prefer to recharge. If you're traveling with your team, this one is especially valuable mm -hmm. because if someone has been with you all day and then they don't want to come to the team happy hour, it's often just that they're an introvert and they need to go and like hide out and be alone right? Uh, as opposed to they just don't want to hang out with you. And then one final one is I particularly value these qualities in the people I work with. So there can be large variation there. It's also a nice signal of how to really have someone value you as a teammate uh, and, and what they're looking for in your performance. Mm -hmm. No, I loved this part of the book too. And, and just so you guys know, I'll put this in the show notes, but this guide to working with me, is this something that you guys would use mostly internally with teams? Or would you also, let's say you do a lot of client work or you know external, would you also, the guide to working with me, the user guide, would you guys also encourage people to use it outside? Yeah, I would say it's valuable anytime you're starting to work with someone new. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually recently was working with a client who sent me something similar that he had created, which was just like, here are the hours that I'm working. Mm -hmm. So he was, we yeah. also aren't in the same city. So that was really valuable for me to know when I could schedule meetings with him. And then he just said, like, I tend to be really short over email. Don't take it personally. So I think just it's always valuable. And in general, communication, I think just I'm always going to be a proponent of it. Oh, my. I love this. I actually think everyone should just start, you know, at, like have this as their permanent attachment. So like <laughs> whoever you're yeah. emailing, it's a permanent attachment. And um, just to kind of go over some of the things that they have here on the free one that you can download from your websites. It drives me nuts when my quirks are. I'm more of an introvert, extrovert, circle one. I recharge by. Um, you said this, I particularly value these qualities and the people I work with. I also liked what he did where it's like, these are the hours I work. The best way to communicate with me is. What's also really fascinating is that that guy probably has gotten feedback in his life where it's like, you know, so-and-so, you know, is really short over email and he's not very nice. You know, I'm sure partly people get feedback and then they start to incorporate things like this to be like, wait, 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 you're just misunderstanding me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to credit Molly with this one, but I love this tip that uh, she has given me and gives other people, which is that when you wrap up a project, so this is especially valuable if you are in a client-facing position, it's really nice to ask, what would you tell people that are going to work with me in the future about me? Because oh, um, so often good. it's hard to really know how people perceive you. 
So I love that question. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. Definitely putting this in the show notes. Uh, I feel like we should also send everybody on career contest to this because I'm really into it. And I I just think it would change so much, you know, to start with that versus wait till there's a problem and then deal with it. Speaking of dealing with things, let's talk about boundaries. How do you establish boundaries with work when, as we talked about earlier, we're all connected 24-7? And maybe, Molly, if you could specifically tell us how you make those boundaries, that would be great. Absolutely. So our first tip, actually something that Liz does, but I do it too when I can, um, which is touch email once. So Liz used to read all of her emails first thing in the morning and then she would like not respond to all of them and, and like have them hanging over her all day. And so, you know, she's thinking about them, but not doing anything about them. And now when she opens an email, she responds to it. She's not going to have time to respond to it. She doesn't open the email. And I do that as well. I like, I'm an inbox zero person mainly just cause like, otherwise I get overwhelmed, but it's just like, I actually only try to check my email when I'm on my laptop or when I connect to public Wi-Fi. And it's sort of a weird rule, but it's like, if I'm going to have to use data and like just be checking it, I probably am not going to be in a mental space where I'm actually going to be able to respond. Whereas like if I have the time to connect to Wi-Fi, I will be able to like sit down if I, you know, I might be waiting in a train or whatever, uh, or on my laptop. And I just feel like we we get into this habit of like reading our emails on our phone, but not doing anything about it. And then yeah. they're hanging over us. The other thing is just limiting your use of social media. So I think there's a lot of especially work-related stuff where people are posting about working and it's just, it's important to take a break from it. And then I also think set an example. So Liz mentioned, you know, Shonda Rhimes, her email signatures, like, may I suggest that you put your phone down? Um, We also, there's this consulting firm called Dynamic and they created an email policy called Zmail, which is that they're not allowed, like the company actually blocks emails from being sent between the hours of 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., which like isn't that long. And like, why should we be emailing during those hours anyways? But it just sets a tone for like, don't email. No one will get this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, what about boundaries where someone's asking you in person to to do work or to do this or do that and you're not comfortable? I mean, because a lot of these are boundaries that we're setting digitally or, you know, not face-to-face, which I think is where confrontation and, you know, you can feel nervous and feel like you're just going to say yes because you don't want to deal with the the uncomfortableness of setting a boundary. What about setting boundaries in person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think a lot of times we get asked to take on projects beyond this, you know, day-to-day scope of our job. And of course we all want to be helpful. Um, but I think truly like having a pause between like the ask and when you respond. So not saying immediately yes or no, but just being like, let me think about that with my workload. And I often think like, I want to be able to, if I'm going to do this, I want to be able to do it well. And if I'm too busy, I'm not going to be able to do it well. And so I have to be honest with you. So let me think about it and come back to Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. It's much better. And I also think asking those around you, whether it's your boss or your colleagues to help you prioritize, like, you know, so often we think it's all on us to figure it out, but going to someone else and saying, here's all the things that I've got on my plate, what is actually most important and what are the things that I should say no to? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the as you said, like if you haven't gotten the idea of the podcast, it's, you know, so that was true. But also bringing your emotions to work is a good thing. And a lot of us don't have the courage to do it, but here's all the things that you could get out of it, including setting boundaries that allow you to have 
the mental headspace to separate from work and actually do better work. So it's just fascinating how a lot of us are afraid to do that for the opposite reasons. We think it's going to hurt our work. Exactly. It's the opposite. Yeah. Okay. So my last question before we move into the rapid fire questions is what was the last courageous act you made and what was the result slash impact of that? Yeah. So I just started a new job and given all the research that Molly and I had done for the book, I had spent a lot of time before I started work really thinking through what do I need in place to help me be like the most effective, best employee I can be. Uh, And I think one of the scariest things to do, especially when you're new somewhere, is just to advocate for yourself. And the thing that I did was I had this really honest conversation with my manager where I said, I'm so excited about this job. I really want to do well. I know that I do my best work when I can work from home for a block of time because there's no distractions. I'm not going to get sucked into a conversation because I love to talk to my coworkers. And so it's just really important to me and also to my productivity that I have that. And how can we set up you know, ways or how can we check in so that you also feel like I'm actually doing work during that time? And she was totally fine with it. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, I think, it brought me closer to her because it felt like I could come to her with issues. We could talk them through, come up with a compromise. And it also just set us off on the right foot because I feel really supportive and like I'm able to do my absolute best work. Mm -hmm. And that's great. And I think it's fantastic that you kind of have started a pattern of advocating for yourself. What would you say, just because it's kind of like the flip end of that, is like, what if someone has accepted a job and they didn't ask for that work from home and six months goes by and they realize like, wow, I, I'm falling behind in work. And if I just worked from home one day a week, you know, my productivity, I'd get a lot more done. So basically advocating for themselves afterwards. I mean, that's also a tough one because you're kind of going backwards. What would your advice be for someone like that? Do it anyways. Is there another way to do it <laughs> instead of just flat out ask? Yeah, I think this and this is advice we give in the book about negotiations in general, which is too often we see it as like a me versus them. And it really should be this is a conversation and how can it be you and me versus the problem? And right. so always framing it in terms of this is how this is going to benefit the company. Here's how it's going to improve my productivity. I think it's fine if you've been somewhere for six months to go to your manager and just say something like, hey, I've been tracking my productivity and I've noticed that when I have time to work from home or even when I just have these blocks of time with no meetings, I get so much done. And it's great if you can walk into that conversation with specific examples and then really just, you know, don't make demands Just say, how can we work on this? Or, or would it be an option to do X or Y? So I think coming in with being able to present your point of view, having put yourself in your manager's shoes, think about what do they want from me, and then just give specific examples that support your case. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move into rapid fire. Um, you guys are probably familiar with this, but they're basically short or one word answers. And I I should have easier questions, but they're always kind of tough. And you guys can either both answer or take them one at a time. It's totally your choice. What would your alternate universe dream job be? So this is Molly. Mine would be being a music supervisor, which is the person who selects the soundtrack for movies. I am obsessed with finding the right music for the right, like, part of my life. And I think <laughs> I love it'll be that. so fun. I love that. Well, next time we're picking music for a season, a podcast season, I'll come to you first. <laughs> Great. Um, okay. Your pr- best productivity hack. I'm sure this is tough because you guys probably know all of them, but what's your best one? 
this is Liz, and it sounds basic, but it's just to-do lists. Like at the end of the day, I write down everything I need to do the next day, and it really lets me go home and go to bed without suddenly my brain starting to be like, oh my God, did I remember this? Am I going to remember that? So just writing it down, and then I'm able to come in the next morning and know what I need to do, and I've gotten a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a list maker too, so I totally, I totally get that. Best tips for leading a meeting? So we got this tip from um, the person who led diversity and inclusion at BlackRock, and he suggested starting meetings with deep questions. And so he gave the example of, if you ask, when you think of your childhood, what food comes to mind and why, you're never just going to get someone saying like, oh, pizza. You're going to be like, oh, it's my mom's Italian pasta, and here's where we were, and here's what I'm thinking of. And just Again, getting to that more personal, emotional level at the beginning of a meeting helps set the stage for us all to be more authentic for the rest of the meeting. I love that. And they and they get to learn more about you. Like, no one would probably traditionally ask you that question. Okay, last one. Looking back, you'd tell your younger self. Yeah, this is Liz. And I would tell my younger self the best piece of advice that I've ever gotten, which was just about kind of forging your own path. And it was... The worst thing that you can do is to bravely step out of the mold and then use someone else's rubric to judge yourself every day. So it is a beautiful thing to want something from your life that originates from you. And so just be weirder, find your way, you will find the people that matter to you. And that's the only way to kind of land in a job that is meaningful. Wonderful. I love that. So tell everybody where they can find you and learn more about your work and your downloads, even though we'll put some of it in the show notes, just, you know, what are the URLs that they should go to? Yeah. So it's our website is Liz and Molly, L-I-Z and Molly, M-O-L-L-I-E.com. And we are on Instagram at Liz and Molly and Twitter at Liz and Molly. We also have a newsletter that you can subscribe to on our website and then you can buy our book, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work at Amazon or any other bookstore. Amazing. And everyone should definitely follow you guys on Instagram because your illustrations are fantastic. And uh, Molly, I think you make those, right? Liz does. Oh, Liz. Awesome. They're so funny. And you've <laughs> you've definitely have put in a modern twist on all the things that are happening at the office. So everyone should definitely follow them. You'll you'll really enjoy it. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks so much. This was great. Thank you. Hey there, it's Lauren and Kayleen back again. Since we loved answering your questions during the summer school season, we really wanted to keep that streak going and, of course, in keeping with this season's theme, do something courageous. So we've decided to create a new segment. It's called Tough Questions. Here's how it's going to work. Each week, we will individually bring one tough question to answer on air. They're not regular questions. They're sort of uncomfortable, difficult-to-answer questions around workplace emotions, personal challenges, and unique vulnerabilities. And we'll also update you on what's happening behind the scenes at Career Contessa. So hopefully you guys enjoy the segment. We're going to be adding these at the end of each episode. So let's dive in. Kayleen, what's happening in your world? (laughs) Hi, Lauren. Well, what's happening in my world is interesting. Um, (laughs) I actually got married last week, so I'm in the process of changing my name. Oh, geez. (laughs) That's fun. (laughs) Much easier name to spell, but... uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Now you're Kayleen Holden. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so I'm getting rid of my um, complicated vowel-heavy Greek last name. I don't. You guys never know this because we always do this off air. But I always have to practice Kayleen's last name before I say it because it's Kaheas is a tricky one for me for yeah. whatever reason and forget spelling it. 
Yeah. I'm not entirely convinced that my husband knows how to spell <laughs> still knows how to spell my last name or former last name. So I think he's really relieved as well. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, you have to tell us all the the highs and lows of going through the process <laughs> of changing your last name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's all lows. <laughs> yeah, I know. Going to the social security office isn't a high for you? Mm. All right. New in my world for behind the scenes. So I, I always send out a monthly Lauren letter to our whole list, kind of giving them updates on, you know, kind of the theme or the season that month that I'm I'm thinking about. But one thing recently I talked about was, so I'm writing a book. It's called Power Moves. And I have to say, it's been a really, really challenging process to write a book. I, I think was a little underestimating how just like how much work it was going to take. It's not like you just sit down and write like a few pages. It's 250 pages. So it's it's been harder. But one thing that just happened was I've, originally I was going to have a published date of around January 2020, and they just moved it to sometime around like May or June. So one part of me was super relieved. <laughs> I got, I got four, five more months back in my life to work on edits and to think about this and, you know, just also realizing like when you have – you know, career contest, everything is so digital. So if we mess something up or we need to fix it really quickly, we can just quickly update it. And it's like nothing ever happened. Books just don't work like that. So I would say something that's new in my world is, is, you know, changing all the timelines <laughs> to that. It's got to be like a, a little breath of fresh air. Though. It definitely is. <laughs> I mean, I, I was sweating. I was like, there's no way, there's no way. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a pleasant surprise. But also, you know, like when you when you have something ingrained in your head and this is part of like a lesson of just being more flexible, but also being like, cool, now I've got five more months and like not being so tied up and like, but I had all these other things planned around this, that happening. So anyway, kind of some fun behind the scenes at Career Contessa. <laughs> okay, let's move into tough questions. I'll let you start. Okay. I feel like this is something we talk about in the office a lot. Um, I know that there was a question around this. Uh, on in summer school, yeah. So my question for you, oh shoot, <laughs> what? My question for you, and it's an awkward question to ask your boss. <laughs> but uh, when is the last time you cried at work? Oh man, um, this is because of this episode's about emotions, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I guess I, I opened it up by having a whole episode focus on this. Last time I cried at work. Probably it was. There were some tough moments this summer, and I definitely, I, I, I remember one time for sure. I got an email, and I had to like get up and walk outside, and like, um, probably call my mom, <laughs> and and just like let loose, and then got it together and came back in. I'm definitely, if, if I'm gonna cry at work, I'm definitely gonna get up and like go outside and do it, um, and then walk around until my face doesn't look puffy uh, <laughs> and red. But I would say most likely, because that doesn't happen that often, most likely I am going to bottle up. And then when I get in my car and I'm driving home and I'm talking to a friend or my mom or someone, then I'm going to have a moment of like letting it out for. I'm I'm very pro like a good cry. I think, yeah. oh, I think yeah. there's something really therapeutic about that. I, I haven't quite embraced like you know, crying in front of other people at work. Like that, I, I, I think I'm still too hardwired to feel like, no, you're not supposed to do that. You go to the bathroom or yeah. you, you you leave or something like that. But I'm very pro a therapeutic cry. <laughs> Sometimes you're crying, you're like, I don't even know why I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's kind of like, um, I feel like it's when you maybe like fall in the street and you're just like, everybody get away. I'm yeah. fine. Like, yeah, it just happened, but I'm fine. And 
Totally. We're getting over it. <laughs> uh, and what I like about my car is my car is like my space. Like you can sing in your car. You can have road rage in your car. You can cry in your car. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. And like that's your space, you know, uh, or at least for me, it's it's kind of like my my space. And I'm in the car a lot. So it's not surprising that I've turned that into like my therapy room as well. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's definitely the last time I've probably cried at work. It's, it's you know, we're recording this in September. So physically in the office probably july so it, it, it i'm probably i'm probably like a once a quarter cry in the office person <laughs> you gotta get those quarterly cries out <laughs> yeah exactly a couple months ago I, I came home and i was just like i need to cry i don't know why <laughs> but i had never, i had never seen saving private ryan so oh, i was like let's my- watch that tonight and i just lost it i was just like sobbing in bed it was but it was uh it was wonderful. Not not <laughs> the best movie choice if you're already like ready to cry. No, it needed to happen. But it it, it helped you get it all out. Yeah. <laughs> um, mine is like all my husband and I will watch Seinfeld reruns and like so sometimes if I'm sad I'll like watch that to just because I'm the opposite. Like I don't want more. I don't want a sad. I want something funny, and that seems to be the one of choice. So it's uh, <laughs> good. Yeah. Okay. So my tough question for you is. When was the last time you went down a rabbit hole and wasted hours of your time? <laughs> and I'm asking this because I would say like two things I really hate wasting in life are like time and money, which I'm sure a lot of people agree with. But recently I've been filtering through like, is this a good use of my time? Is this working smarter and not harder? So this is also me asking you because it's going to potentially help me. <laughs> I feel like my answer is very basic, but uh, it's Instagram. Yeah, I will get into like deep, deep holes. You know, when you start, when once you're kind of finished with, it, you're like ascending from the hole, and yeah. you start to do. I think that's when it really rings true is when you start to navigate back, and you're like, how many accounts did I go oh, through to yeah. get here? Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about this on a YouTube video recently, but I have had to like uh, set time limits for myself and things like that because I'll just get lost. And yeah. Cake frosting videos, I mean, soap <laughs> yeah. cutting, sand cutting, like l- literally anything. Like then the fitness ones and the the like any. I'll watch anything. Yeah, and and they'll serve it and serve it and serve it. Right. So it's uh, well, IGTV now they 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 want you to stay on there. They've set a trap and you've fallen directly into it. Yes. Yeah, I, I I think a lot of people can agree that Instagram or any social media can be a rabbit hole that you go down. I'm starting to have Instagram free or social media free weekends. And I find that really, really helpful. I would say the flip side of that is then I've been just trying to carry my phone around less with me or like mm-hmm. leave it in another room because it, it requires like a level of self-discipline that I'm like, I don't know if I have that. So I have to like, cause it's so automatic to just pick it up and yep. do it. So awesome. All right. Well, that was our first round of tough questions. You guys can feel free to also DM us on our Instagram channel for the podcast, which is at the females podcast. If you have tough questions you want us to ask, but Um, We're going to be doing this all season long and and being courageous and kind of sharing all our vulnerabilities with you. But thank you for listening to this episode of The Females. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. We absolutely love hearing from you all. We'll be back next Tuesday with Jessica Knoll, a best-selling author and the woman whose recent New York Times opinion piece, I Want to Be Rich and I'm Not Sorry, went viral. But until then, you can follow us on at The Females Podcast on Instagram. Share this episode with your work wives and listen to this sneak peek of next week's episode. And from that came, hey, I want to be rich. Like, I've never heard a woman say that. I feel like I'm all alone. 
And the greatest thing about writing these opinion pieces, and I've had this experience twice with two essays I wrote where I've written something where I felt really, really alone, and the world responded in kind, you know? And I heard from so many women who were like, yes, I feel this exact same way. So I think it's really important to contribute and diversify the narrative out there that we have for women about what they can do with their lives because that was one that just to me I didn't see reflected in our mediascape.